talk a lot about cemeteries that have been removed or erased for different reasons, usually having to do with the growth of cities and urban development. When we think about cemeteries, we tend to think about them as permanent places. Can a cemetery that's not visible still be a permanent memorial? Last week, for our one-year anniversary questions, I got a question about Washington Square Park in Manhattan. This week, I'm going to look in-depth at the story of what lies underneath Washington Square Park, and indeed, what lies under most of Manhattan. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So, this question to me was one where I thought this was fairly common knowledge at this point, but I guess not. Unfortunately, I could literally talk about nothing other than cemeteries that have been built on top of on this podcast. So I don't want to belabor the point. I will bring up a few interesting examples. Uh, I know that last November, uh, I Ashley and I covered the discussion of San Francisco's lost cemeteries in depth. Uh, and San Francisco is probably the most extreme example, but there are plenty of these. I know I've brought up Monument Cemetery in Philadelphia multiple times. The truth is that in any urban area, particularly urban areas that have large, dense populations, this type of thing is almost inevitable for a couple of different reasons. Most of them I have talked about before, and the most obvious is that in an age prior to modern technology, locating burials was more difficult, so things get left behind. Secondly, there are financial and other restrictions that sometimes make things challenging. Thirdly, I think that there has just been a change in attitude. In the modern era, we are much more distanced from death. I think that in the past, death was something that people accept a little bit more. So being in the presence of a burial ground of any kind was not as uncomfortable as people see it today. And I do want to do an episode in the future about cemeteries and real estate because I think it's an interesting phenomenon from both sides. But... I think that in the past, as long as the cemetery wasn't a source of disease, as long as it did not smell, which many of them did, people were generally a little less hesitant to be around them. So, in order to discuss Washington Square Park, first I need to orient you and we need to talk a little bit about exactly what was there before. So, what is today Washington Square Park was originally outside the border of Manhattan. Uh, Wall Street was historically the boundary to where the southern end of the city or settlement was. And I'm talking 16, 1700s here. So this was sort of the hinterlands, which obviously you know that for cemetery planning, burials outside the city are more attractive because it cuts down on the threat of disease and those other issues like smell. It certainly was not the first burial place. If you look at the history of Manhattan in general, there there are struggles. There are real struggles almost from its inception because it is an island. They're limited the amount of land they have and they are limited in the depth that they can bury people. There's lots of issues. Overcrowding is 
a challenge almost from the beginning. Trinity Church, which is right there kind of uh, near Wall Street. Um, most famous, I mean, even if you look at videos from September 11th, Trinity was right in the, the thick of it. Beautiful church. Uh, but the Trinity Churchyard had something like 125,000 burials in it. Um, most of them in vaults. So th this is not a new phenomenon. And obviously, if you have been to any of the outer boroughs, you know, this is the reason that the outer boroughs are ringed with cemeteries is because Manhattan just could not handle that type of burial. So looking at the early stage, what is today Washington Square Park was sort of a, it had a valley running through it. And this valley was low swampy land because there was a body of water there which I've seen it referred to by a number of different names. Um, either Minetta Creek, Minetta Brook, or usually it's just Minetta Waters, M-I-N-E-T-T-A. And this valley pre-contact had been the site of a Native American village, uh, which was known as Sapokanakan, uh, which means tobacco field. And... During the Dutch period, it's interesting because this land, slowly as they purchased the island in Manhattan and the native population moved away, this, starting in the 1640s, became the land that was granted to those who had been either indentured or slaves of the Dutch. So this area actually became known as Little Africa first. Um, and... For quite some time, it was land that was farmed. And this was kind of like the benefit because you had water running through it. So it was definitely arable land, but there was also high ground. So you could be away from flooding. This was seen as it's a pretty attractive piece of land. And at no point since contact has it not been uninhabited. And it's used by a number of folks. Um, like I said, during the Dutch period, it is primarily former slaves and indentured servants. And eventually that evolves. As you get into the later colonial period, um, so around the time of the American Revolution, uh, this land is actually owned by a pretty famous guy. And that's William Stephen Smith. And he is probably best known as being George Washington's aide-de-camp during the Revolutionary War. Um, but he is also famous for who he married, which was Abigail the daughter of John Adams and Abigail Adams, who has the distinction of the fact that, so her mother's maiden name was Smith, Abigail Adams. So she was Abigail Smith Adams, and upon her marriage, she had the distinction of becoming Abigail Smith Adams Smith, which just seems excessive. Uh, but William Stephen Smith, despite the fact that he had a pretty long political career and definitely had a lot of connections, had some financial woes. And so he sold the land. And this is going to be in the early days of the United States. So in 1797, this is when the land comes under the control of the city of New York. And they are seeking this land out because they have a growing problem. At this point, New York, for the first time, is really starting to experience growth problems. And they're reconfiguring a lot of the city. Um, if you know anything about urban planning, you know that this is around the time that they start to reconfigure the way that the streets are built. That's going to happen a little bit later in, in the early 1800s. But they're starting to think about particularly institutions that they can shift around. 
So prior to this point, there had been a potter's field in Manhattan. And the potter's field in Manhattan at that point was actually located on the borders of what is today Madison Square Park. Uh, which if you have spent time in New York City, I guarantee you have probably seen it uh, if you've gone to the New York Public Library. Um, this was used as a potter's field. And just a friendly reminder, so potter's fields are for the burial of the indigent dead. For whatever reason, people who cannot afford burial anywhere else. And this could take a number of forms. Uh, and these were far more common in this particular era. And this particular Madison Square Park potter's field, which was used from 1791 to 1794, was purposely put there because it was in close proximity to the existing almshouse or poorhouse for the city, as well as being close to Bellevue Hospital. So a lot of those indigent dead people who died either in the poorhouse or at the hospital were buried in the cemetery. But already development led this to being way too small for a long-term practical solution to the burial problem. Um, it's believed that there were about 1,300 burials in the Madison Square Park potter's field. And from what I can tell, it also was not moved. Uh, there's far less written about it than Washington Square Park. Um, and I wanted to kind of focus just on one park, but just know that, and I'm going to go into a couple more examples. No matter where you put something down <laughs> in New York City, odds are someone has been buried there. So this started to be phased out, and another part of this being phased out was the fact that the almshouse was closed right around the same time. And again, they felt that as the city grew, that land could be more profitably used for something else. So the almshouse was closed, the potter's field was closed, and they started to search for another solution. It's also worth noting, and this is kind of a side note, but uh, there is still one marked burial um, right on the edge of Madison Square. And it's actually a later burial that has nothing to do with the Potter's Field. Um, and it's the monument for William Jenkins Worth, who was a veteran of the Mexican-American War. And he's actually buried, like, kind of on a plot of land adjacent to Madison Square Park. Um, and he was buried there, like I said, after that particular era. Obviously, if you, you know, the Mexican-American War hadn't happened yet. Um... And he is buried under a rather impressive obelisk. So a lot of times you do have isolated burials that happen even in cities um, that don't count as part of that archaeological record, mainly because they're often done on privately owned land or because they are isolated, they are very neatly contained. So in 1797, the decision is made that they are going to move the potter's field outside the city to this land on the border of Manhattan, land that will today become, or in the future, will become Washington Square Park. So this is a pretty substantial piece of land. Um, today, Washington Square Park covers about 9.75 acres, um, and the village today is Greenwich Village, if you're not familiar with Manhattan. Um, so sort of like south-central Manhattan. And it's difficult to describe because the street names have changed, the layout has changed, a, a lot of what originally existed is no longer there. And it's interesting because I looked at a lot of historic maps of Manhattan, and we're so familiar with the grid system that exists today, 
So it looks a little strange to see the way that the potter's field or the land that was covered by the potter's field was laid out at the time, but that's because it was laid out before the modern grid system that we think of as being so iconic to Manhattan. So keep that in mind. And it's one of the reasons that this burial ground kind of has ragged edges and doesn't fit perfectly into what we think of as Washington Square Park. The reason for that is, is because it just didn't exist. This was open land at the time. And when the city would later convert it to a park, they were only dealing with the same rough configurations. So if you go to Washington Square Park today, um, the very unimaginative names of the streets that surround it are Washington Square North, Washington Square South, East, and West, respectively. Uh, and the majority of the buildings around it are owned by NYU, um, including their library. Their library's right there. This was obviously not the case. In this part of Manhattan, at the time that the cemetery was originally established, there was not much. This area would start to boom around the late 1820s, early 1830s, when what started to happen was that on the eastern and western sides of the park, this became very desirable real estate to build townhouses. So this area is kind of like, it's on the edges. People are starting to see it as attractive as the inner city gets more and more crowded, but it's not quite there yet. And as I will discuss, you have a couple of church congregations that build out here, there's some development, but for the most part, this is still agrarian farmland outside the city of Manhattan. If you are familiar again with Manhattan today, this is actually where Fifth Avenue terminates, but it did not always. Um, that's an important thing to note. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the roads later on. So April of 1797, a couple of things happen. First of all, the first burials start to occur um, in fall of that year. The second thing that happens is that they actually build a keeper's house. Now, this is something I, I honestly don't think I've covered much on the podcast, but it was very common to have either a sexton or a keeper, someone who was in charge of overseeing burials. And this person often had another job and did this in addition to their primary occupation. Uh, from what I can see, uh, looking at the history of the keepers who worked for the cemetery, it appears that the majority of them were employed as carpenters, which honestly makes sense if you think about what else they are doing. So they might be, oh, I don't know, building caskets. Um, so David Marshall was the first keeper from 1797 to 1803. Um, and he appears to have been a cart man, so he probably transported bodies. Um, John Mackenzie from 1803 to 1809, he was a cooper, so he built barrels, again, a woodworker. William P. Room from 1809 to 1813, he was a carpenter. Morris Ackerman from 1813 to 1816, um, he was listed as either a grocer or a Cartman, again, probably transport bodies. Um, Daniel McGee from 1816 to 1824. Again, he is listed as a cartman for the most part. And then we have William Sherman from 1824-ish. Uh, he was a chairmaker, again, a woodworker. And Cornelius Myers was the last keeper in 1825. Uh, he was a wood inspector and a mason. 
So these are all people who are craftsmen who probably made a living both from doing this as well as maybe making coffins, things like that. It makes sense. It's a very natural relationship between the two. Um, if you know much about furniture makers throughout the history of the United States, they often made coffins on the side as a side gig. So these keepers actually, for the most part, lived at the cemetery. And again, this is something I haven't talked about on the podcast, but it's very common to have somebody there. Cemeteries and burial grounds did not operate the way that we do today. We tend to think of them so much as businesses where they have business hours and there's somebody that you call to open the grave. That wasn't always the case. Um, So having a keeper there who could deal with business and who could transact business was considered very, very important. And you will sometimes see superintendents' lodges or keepers' lodges still in existence at the larger rural cemeteries. Um, Some of them are quite beautiful. Lovely, lovely houses. Um, I know here at Oakland and Atlanta, the Bell Tower, which was built turn of the last century, um, originally had living quarters for the superintendent of the cemetery. These have often been converted into offices like they have at Oakland, uh, among others. I know that uh, Swan Point in Providence had a beautiful Tudor Revival superintendent's house that was actually across Blackstone Boulevard from the cemetery, and it sold for millions of dollars a couple of years ago. The cemetery no longer owned it. Um, but it gives you an idea of the fact that these, these were pretty substantial sometimes, and this was considered to be a very important job, important enough to have somebody there. The Washington Square Park Potter's Field was not quite that luxurious. We do know that from the city records, there was a keeper's house, and that keeper's house was actually built with materials that were salvaged from the almshouse. If you remember earlier in the episode, I noted that the almshouse was being closed because it was downtown and that land was going to be very desirable. So the thrifty city used some of the materials from that almshouse, brought them down, to Washington Square, what is now Washington Square Park, and they built a keeper's house on site. They also dug a well so that the keeper would have fresh water. Neither of these has been positively identified, but based on historic maps, they do have a pretty good idea of where they were. And if you look at sort of the overlay of where the burial ground was, they were kind of like centrally located. It was right right in the thick of things. Um not so secret desire you know number one would be if someday I could just be a lighthouse keeper and live in a lighthouse that's probably not going to happen because there are relatively no manned lighthouses um there was talk back maybe a year or two ago that one of the lighthouses up in Minnesota had an opening and you could live at the lighthouse and I was like I don't care what it takes I will get that job but since that's probably never going to happen I would very happily take occupancy of any cemetery keepers lodge that they are looking to rent out would be very happy doing that uh the national cemetery up in marietta the old office it's a beautiful dutch revival 1930s lovely hardwood floors would live there in a second no doubt um just putting that offer out there should anybody listening know of the opportunity to live in a former keepers lodge Sadly, the one in Washington Square Park is no longer there, obviously. Um, it was demolished soon after the Potter's Field itself closed. So we have the keepers living on site. Now, 
One of the struggles is that we don't know a whole heck of a lot about who was being buried here. There are some indicators that this was maybe not used exclusively as a potter's field, mainly the presence of some memorials. Now, I know that I've talked about this in the past, that often at the time of death, people cannot afford a memorial. They might be able to afford one later. So maybe people's circumstances changed and they initially had to bury their loved one in a potter's field and could afford a memorial later on. It's not entirely clear, but gravestones have been found subsequently in this area, which generally is not associated with a potter's field. We do know that this was a pretty picturesque piece of land. Um, And this happens mainly because we have records from the city council talking about different features. Um, So there are orders for it to be enclosed with a wooden fence, so it is a fenced area. There's discussion of trimming the poplar trees, so there are still trees along the landscape. They do work along the Mineta waters, which there are never any burials really close to the creek, but the water is still not too far away. So they are maintaining this. This is maybe not as grim and depressing as a lot of the potter's fields that we tend to think about. Um, And I bring this up mainly because obviously Hearts Island uh, off New York City has been very much in the news throughout the pandemic. And there have been a lot of really grim photos of exactly what a modern day potter's field looks like. And It's hard to say because we don't have any drawings. We don't have many written records of this particular cemetery in Washington Square Park. But it seems like they at least tried to maintain it and keep up appearances. It did get heavy use, um, particularly because at this point in the city's history, like most cities at the time, there were still massive amounts of yellow fever epidemics. If you recall, so 1797 is an interesting year in terms of this because the same year that this Potter's Field is founded, it's the same year that James Hill House, right down the road in New Haven, Connecticut, founds the Grocery Burial Ground in response to yellow fever epidemics. So there is a lot that is going on in this period. By 1808, the city makes the decision to actually infill Mineta Waters, and it looks like they're doing this because adjacent to this, there are still farmers who are farming the land. Um, I read quite a bit about them. They're not really relevant to the cemetery, but I think it was, you know, a move to try to, again, make more usable land. So they do fill in Mineta Waters. Now, what kind of volume are we seeing? Well, with these epidemics, the estimates range anywhere between 10 and 20,000 bodies. I have seen wide ranges. I don't think that they have the best records either way. There are only a handful of newspaper articles that even mention this. We do know that at one point they were doing trench burials. Um, So obviously there was a high enough volume that this was required. I'm going to read you one of these articles. It's from the New York Evening Post from May 20th, 1824, which is actually towards the end um, of its use as a burial ground. And it is the cautionary tale of a man named Solomon Palmley, who was, quote, indicted for a misdemeanor and recovering the covers of 10 coffins deposited in a pit and covered partially with earth. It was proved in the trial by a Mr. Sherman, 
the present keeper of the potter's field, I mentioned him earlier, that about three o'clock in the morning, in the latter part of April, he suspected that some people had entered the field for the purpose of removing the dead. And after sending for two watchmen, which that's the equivalent of a policeman at the time, and calling his faithful dog, he went to ascertain the fact. Upon arriving at the grave, he found his suspicions confirmed and requested that the person concealed in the pit come out and show himself. No answer being given, Mr. Sherman sent his dog into the pit, and in a twinkling of an eye, a tall, stout fellow made his appearance and took to his heels across the field. The dog, who pursued him for some distance, at last came up with him and held him fast until the arrival of Mr. Sherman and the watchman, who secured him. Parmley threw from him a chisel which had been used to force the coffins. The counsel for the accused rested his defense on the ground that the intoxicated prisoner was returning into the grave to sleep so he could be protected from the night air. The jury convicted him and the court sentenced him to six months imprisonment at the penitentiary. All right, that's quite a story. Um, I was talking to somebody about grave robbing and they said, you know, do you have a, a good historical source on this I said well I have some articles and that's one of them so obviously you have um, Mr. Parmley who was grave robbing and we have definitely a pit burial so this is an open pit burial which is the method that they still use today out at Hearts Island there's a lot to unpack here uh, it's a funny story it kind of is because you know his defense is that well I was going to sleep in the hole to protect me from the night air and you hear a lot about cemeteries and these miasmas and the bad air that surrounds them. Um, this is, again, certainly not unheard of. Um, almost anybody that you talk to who works for a cemetery will tell you that there is a certain amount of homeless population that chooses to live in cemeteries for various reasons, um, whether they are safer than sleeping in other locations, um, they're better kept. Um, they treat for things like insects and mosquitoes and fire ants, so it's safer to sleep without getting eaten alive. Uh, there are a lot of different reasons that you might have for doing this, but um, I just think it's kind of hilarious that the, the jury didn't even take them seriously. They weren't like, no, no, you were robbing the coffins. You didn't need a chisel to take a nap. So this indicates a couple of things. Not only are they doing pit burials, but also at this point you have to wonder if it's possible that they're starting to fill up and that an increased number of burials means that they are about to tap out this particular area. And maybe the adjacent farmers don't want to sell. This is at the same time that those townhouses are starting to be built. Maybe it's a less desirable neighbor to have. Either way, within a year in spring, so this is about just about a year before, so in April of 1825, the city makes the decision to close the burial ground. And this will no longer be the potter's field for New York City. Um, now we start to see a little bit. The city is very aware of the fact that this was a burial ground. And so less than a year later, on January 16th, 1826, the Common Council says, quote, from the circumstances of this plot having so lately been used as a public burying ground, it is not intended for private purposes for some years to come. 
So even though this area is heating up and people are starting to build these beautiful Greek revival townhouses, the city is well aware of the fact that eh, we can't really just sell the land. So what they decide to do is, interestingly enough, the same thing that they had done in Madison Square 20 years before, and they turned it into a parade ground. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, it's essentially an open place for the military to drill. This is something that, you know, many of our modern parks start off as parade grounds. Um, Forsyth Park down in Savannah is another great example. And it's essentially you have an open place for practicing military maneuvers. And it's a way that you can have a very low impact kind of activity going on. You're not selling it. People are not digging foundations. You are not farming it. It's essentially pretty much the most passive type of use of land that you can have. But it's also something in a gradually growing urban environment that you still need to have a parade ground if you are drilling your militia, if you are drilling your army. So during 1826, um, what they started to do is they started to fill. And they essentially leveled the ground. So if you remember before, the center of the area where Mineta Waters was was kind of a valley. And then the, the original potter's field was at the top kind of on the top of a hill. What they decided to do was they actually graded it. And this was a good time to do it because there were a lot of construction projects going on around it. So they used all of that clean fill to essentially level it off to make a nice flat parade ground. And it depends on where you are in the area, but there is anywhere between 8 and 10 feet of fill added. So they are raising the grade. They are flattening things out. And so what's going to happen is, is that slowly over the years, this is going to become an open space. They will eventually add walkways. They will eventually add paths. They will slowly transition from parade ground into full grown park. So it doesn't become a full grown park until the 1870s. But this definitely is a trend that starts and it, I think that they kind of see that this is the most practical use for the space. Um, as it becomes a more desirable neighborhood, having a park there is seen as a, a bonus. It's something that really pushes people to want to buy there. It's an attractive feature. Um, and still, very much so today. Um, if you look at Washington Square Park, there's a reason it is considered to be such a, a core element of Manhattan. So, the next big step is... Let's discuss the bodies that are 8 to 10 feet underneath. Why didn't they move the bodies? I think this is where the fundamental difference comes into play. The belief between then versus now. I don't think that they ever saw a need to move the bodies. I don't think that they saw the need at all because to them, if people are just going to be walking above them, that they didn't see that as disrespectful. I don't want to say that life had less value then, but if you consider mortality rates, if you consider the opinions regarding death and the sheer volume from epidemics and things like that, I think that they felt that the burial ground, especially once they had put fill on top of it, was far enough below grade that they no longer had to worry about this. And it's very difficult for us to think about in terms of our modern conception of this. 
I can remember very distinctly when I was a teacher suggesting to one of my coworkers who was a runner, she was complaining. She's like, oh, I really wanted to go for a run today, but, you know, the school is on such a busy road. And I told him, I was like, well, there's there's a path through the woods. I said, at the end of the path, I said, you're going to come to to Mount Hope Cemetery. I was like, it's a great place to run. I said, you know, it's quiet. You know, the roads are well-maintained. You know, not a lot of traffic and everything like that. And she looked at me as if I had just taken a dump in her lunch. How could you ever suggest that I would go to a cemetery? There is, again, that separation of the living and the dead. I think that the attitude in the past was much more common. We won't deal with it. It's not like we're selling it to a developer. It's not like we're building townhomes on top of it, though that certainly has happened. And I think it's one of those things that you will find that people have surprisingly short memories. Um, absent the internet, absent things like that, I'm sure by the time that the 1870s rolled around when it became a full-blown park, what we today think of as Washington Square Park, I'm sure that there were some people who may have remembered what used to be there, but the vast majority of people didn't remember that. It's the same way if you, if your favorite store was torn down, by the time your grandchildren come around, odds are they have no idea what that store even was, let alone where it was. So the next time that the whole situation kind of rears its ugly head is not going to be until 20 years after this was actually made a park. And this is when they start what is essentially the biggest project that happens in the history of Washington Square Park. So if you have seen it in a movie, in a TV show, it's kind of unavoidable. Washington Square Park is so visible in Manhattan. You know that the arch, which the arch is situated on Washington Square North, um, which is like the intersection of Waverly Place and I think the former 6th Street, basically where 5th Avenue terminates. The arch was built in 1889 to celebrate the centennial of the inauguration of George Washington. And it is a triumphal arch built in the classical style of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, the Arch of Constantine in Rome, all, all of these triumphal arches that, that you are intimately familiar with. Everybody's going to recognize them immediately. So when they began to build this, and I will say that if you are an architecture buff, you will probably immediately know who built this. But for those who are not, this was built by the firm of um, McKim, Mead, and White, uh, who were kind of scions of big New York society. You have probably seen some of their work, oh, I don't know, at some of the train stations in New York. But McKimmy and White were, were huge. They were huge in the business, and they were the ones who undertook the construction of the arch. So about a year after they broke ground, what happened was is that they started to hit burials. And the following article was published in the New York Times on May 13th, 1890, and is entitled Skeletons in the Way, Bones and Coffins Unearthed in Washington Square. The laborers at work digging for a foundation for the Washington Memorial Arch in Washington Square opposite the lower terminus of Fifth Avenue, found themselves in an old graveyard yesterday and had an uncanny time 
of spading out parts of skeletons and decayed coffins. This ghastly discovery began Saturday at about 10 feet below the surface, when some headstones were discovered, and a few bones of which the only evidence that they were human was the fact that they happened to be near the headstones. Yesterday, when the digging got several feet deeper, spades brought up bones at nearly every turn. For the first time also, the remnants of coffins were unearthed. Water was also found at about this level. The workmen came across one coffin submerged at the upper end of the excavation. As they dug at it, the lid came off, showing a skeleton within. Water and dirt had done their work so thoroughly, however, that there was scarcely more than the outline of the skeleton to be made out. The workmen put the loose bones they had found in a barrel and piled the pieces of coffin beside them. They did not remove the submerged find of yesterday. Architect White, desiring to have it left as is until a sketch can be made of the scene. It is probable that the bones now in the barrel will be buried again in a new grave at the same spot. As soon as it was known yesterday that the workmen were digging out human bones at the enclosure where the excavation is going on, they were besieged with crowds of curious people. All sorts of old memories were brushed up to account of the discovery. It was recalled that part of Washington Square was once the potter's field, and this explanation would have been enough if only the bones had been found. It did not explain the headstones to the satisfaction of the crowd, however. It was then recalled that the spot was used during the cholera epidemic for the burial of cholera patients. Two of the stones bearing the date of 1803 disposed a large part of this explanation. Just so you know, I'm going to put an indent there. The, the cholera epidemic didn't happen until 1832, so that was actually after it was closed. An owner of one of the houses in Washington Square North, who was among the day's visitors, said that in the making of some improvements a few years ago in his yard, he came across headstones and bones as well. And upon making inquiries, he had learned that a German cemetery occupied the spot early in the century. Potter's Field never having been there, but in another part of Washington Square. In the present excavation, earth lines are distinctly marked showing if the ground in the neighborhood had at some time been filled to the present grade, to a height of eight feet above the old level. The spot was evidently used as a burial ground before the grade was raised. So, I apologize, it's a very awkwardly written article as most articles written in 1890 are. Um, I feel like they repeat a lot and they kind of wind around. I think they were probably getting paid by the word, which explains a lot. But this brings up to this old German burial. So I'm, I'm going to go into this in a minute because there are a lot of explanation about why there were headstones. Subsequent research shows, if you recall, I told you that some of the first things to move down to this undeveloped part of the city were churches. What we know now is that there were several churches who purchased plots along the edges of this potter's field and this burial ground. Now, this is where things get a little foggy 
and they are not as shall we say clear cut um because these are churches who had since long moved on often were no longer in existence so we don't have as clear guidelines as to exactly what they were and I, you will find that with a lot of these particular like older issues that they just don't keep great records um which is unfortunate but it is what it is um I got a lot of this information from the archaeological report that was written for the restoration of the Washington Arch in 2004 and then the improvements to Washington Square Park including moving the fountain to make it more centrally located um so this is one of the more well-documented spots essentially in New York um and even still people just didn't care that much about cemeteries so it's not well documented it's not well covered so we find that there are a lot of holes still in this um to no fault of anyone in particular that's just the way that things were and if you look at the amount of articles that are written about cemeteries today you will still find that there are probably large gaps in the historic record because it's just not something that people really focus on so an important thing to keep in mind is that washington square for most of its history was but a stopping point in the flow of traffic through Manhattan. And I make this point because for most of its history, Washington Square actually had a road running through it. So you had the arch on the northern end of the square, and there was a road which you used to be able to park around the fountain. There was a road that went around the fountain and then kind of swerved down south to Washington Square South. And this road was in place up until 1959. Um, and the closest that I have seen to um, actually talking about this, um, if you have seen The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, she, there is a scene where she sees Jane Jacobs in the park talking about protesting against Robert Moses. Um, Robert Moses, the great villain of New York City planning, um, starting in the 1940s, had really pushed the idea of a freeway that would border Washington Square Park. And it was a lot of the protests and the movement within this community in particular um, that really put a stop to that. And eventually in 1959, so traffic only closed in April of 1959. And after that, you could not drive through the park. So that just gives you an idea that this is a constantly changing and shifting entity. So aside from putting up fencing, putting up gates, um, laying down sidewalks, landscaping, planting of trees, planting of bushes and things like that, there is road maintenance, so there is grading, things like that, paving. You know, if it starts off as gravel, eventually it becomes asphalt. There is the installation of benches, which if you know in a city, they're going to be on a concrete slab. In addition to that, there are actually several buildings in Washington Square Park, all of which have foundations. So there are um, comfort stations or early public restrooms built um, officially in the 1930s, but there may have been sort of water closets prior to that. There was a bandstand. There was an administration building in the park. There also was an actual police shelter. I've seen pictures of these. Some of these are so beautiful. It's very sad that they no longer exist. Not to mention the fountain. 
not to mention storm sewers, not to mention lots of things underneath the park. And I say all of this because it goes to show you that the park is really pretty far above the burials. Just think about it, you know, your average house probably has eight foot ceilings. So picture that, you know, a whole story. There's a whole story of a house plus, more than a whole story of a house plus between the surface level and between where the burials even begin. Because if you recall in that article I just read you, they said that they started to find things at, you know, eight to 10 feet. But in order to actually hit most of the burials, they had to dig even deeper. And this is, you know, you don't know exactly, you know, what methods they were using, how they were digging, was it haphazard, things like that. So this is pretty far below the surface. It's not like if your kid is out there digging in the dirt at Washington Square Park, he's going to come up with a femur. That's not going to happen because these burials are quite deep. Now, I know I kind of got off on a tangent there, but I just wanted to make that point. Um, Let's go back to the discussion of the additional churches. Because there are, from what I can tell, at least three churches which also had burials located in Washington Square Park. And all of these are documented as being mostly associated with the Scotch Presbyterian Church. And there are kind of mixed reports about, you know, which congregation was first, when they exactly were founded. Um, Essentially, from what I can tell, was that there was one Scotch Presbyterian Church that sort of broke off into additional congregations over time. And these particular churches um, purchased land on the west side, the west side of the square. Um, They're small plots, about 128 by 50 feet for the bigger one, and then 51 by 57 feet. Um, The larger one is identified as belonging to Cedar Street Church, um, which is... These are, like, these are basically in the northeast corner. Like, at the intersection of Washington Square North and Washington Square East. Um, The second um, is associated with Pearl Street Church. That's the smaller one, 51 by 57 feet. Um, They think that the Cedar Street Church was originally the Scotch Presbyterian or the Successionist Church. The first church was established in 1756, the second in 1797. Um, And they appear to be associated, like they made deals together. Um, They were grandfathered in for some reason. So eventually, like fast forwarding, there were restrictions placed on churches about whether or not they could bury within city limits. Um... So I think that they were kind of making a savvy move, like seeing the writing on the wall, knowing that they probably wouldn't be allowed to establish a separate cemetery. So they were like, hey, this is already a cemetery. Maybe we can get in on the edge of this and be grandfathered in. And I think that's essentially what happened. Um, There are records that other congregations, so the Zion African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, made a request for a plot in 1807. Um, 
they also asked uh, Sheriff Israel, which was a Jewish congregation, also asked for that. Um, so there were a couple of other cemeteries within the larger cemetery. That's the big point that I should make. Now, uh, Sheriff Israel actually got turned down um, in a pretty solidly anti-Semitic move there. Um, but these two church vaults are the ones that I really want to talk about. Because these popped up out of nowhere. And these clearly had been forgotten. Um, so what happens is, is that on August 2nd, 1965, quote, skeletons found in Washington Square. 25 uncovered in a sealed room at a Con Ed project by Paul L. Montgomery. Workmen at the Consolidated Edison Excavation in Washington Square have uncovered what they described as a sealed underground room containing about, seven, about 25 skeletons. The men were sinking a 12-foot shaft at the northeast corner of the historic square on Friday when they broke through the domed roof of the room. They peered in, saw the bones, and immediately filled in the shaft. They are now awaiting advice from Con Ed and the city. Abraham Marcus, president of the Marcus Substructure Corporation, a Con Ed subtractor, said the room appeared to be, quote, a tomb of some sort. He said it contained, quote, quite a few skeletons. The workmen at the site said that they were three half-buried coffins and about 25 visible skeletons in the enclosure. From the 18th century until 1823, the area that is now Washington Square Park was a city cemetery. It was also the public hanging ground. I'll get to that in a minute. Neither fact, however, would necessarily account for the sealed room. One theory was that it was especially built for people carried off by a plague, of which history books mention several in the 18th century. The project is at the corner of Washington Square East and Washington Square North, abutting the park and across from the New York University. It is to contain three underground bays for Con Ed Transformers. The Marcus Company, whose offices are at 165 West 46th Street, is building the foundation for the bays. Last week, after the shaft for two of the bays had been dug and shored up, it was decided to add a third. Excavation began on Thursday. So sheer dumb luck, really. Four or five feet down, the workmen came upon a curved surface of rock, or hardened cement, that they took to be a boulder. Later, however, they decided it was an abandoned tunnel, and on Friday they broke through it. That was when they saw the bones. This is a break. It says, Graves fairly common. A Con Ed spokesperson said it was fairly common for workmen to come upon single graves when digging in the area. However, he said he had never before heard of a room full of bodies being discovered. Mr. Marcus said that his corporation had done other work in the area, but had never uncovered so much as a thigh bone until Friday. But, he remarked with a wink, I have seen some skeletons walking around the park with sandals on. Could this be more 1965? You can picture him, I'm sure. This man has very neat, brill-creamed hair and always wears a three-piece suit. Yesterday was a sunny day in Washington Square Park. Since neither the Consolidated Edison nor city authorities had yet been informed of the discovery, the hole filled in with fresh dirt at the corner attracted no attention. 
across the street from a row of white-trimmed brick townhouses that are among the last survivors of past elegance. Children chased each other in the playground and romped around the trees that, according to legend, were once gallows. So um, that overblown piece of journalism. Um, what they clearly have hit here is a church vault, and it is a brick vault Pretty much any vault is going to be designed essentially the same. And that's exactly what this looks like. To me, this appears to be the smaller of the two church vaults. That's exactly what they hit. Um, it's pretty obvious to me. I, I don't think that there's any other way that you can slice it. It appears that they changed their plan and they ended up not laying down that third portion that they mention in the article. And they just move on. You would think that this would be well documented, right? That, you know, the fact that a major corporation found this, this is published in the New York Times, you would think that this would be something that people would have kept track of. You would think a lot of things. I'm going to take a short break and I'm going to discuss the issue of it being a public hanging ground and the trees being gallows. This is a common misconception. I have seen it in a number of places from what I've read. And like I said, I have read some pretty extensive histories of this. It appears that only one execution ever took place in what is today Washington Square Park. And it's not clear exactly why it happened there at the time. But it certainly was not a generally public hanging ground. Um... The execution was of a woman named Rose Butler. Uh, she was a young woman. I believe she was um, probably around 20 years old. Um, she was a black woman, and she was convicted of arson, which arson was one of only three offenses at the time that you could be executed for. Um, and it appears that her trial occurred somewhere in the area. So she was convicted in 1819, and it appears that she was executed near where she was eventually buried. She was probably buried in the potter's field. It's not clear why it only happened that one time, what the circumstances were, but from all of the records that everybody has looked at, it appears that that is the only execution. So the cemetery was not used as a public execution ground, to me, it's one of these overblown rumors that people who love ghost stories love to share. There is enough weird history associated with this particular piece of ground without blowing things out of proportion. I mean, I think it's an interesting fact that this execution happened and then they buried her right there, which again is very common with executions. Um, keep in mind that these people often, you know, their families did not claim them or didn't have the right to claim them. I think it's an interesting fact, but... Certainly not quite as dramatic as that particular story tends to make it. All right, are you ready for something really ridiculous now? I hope so. So let's fast forward. Let's see, how long? 40 years? 50 years? 50 years sounds about right. To November 6th, 2015. The New York Times headline reads... Beneath Washington Square, forgotten tombs begin to yield their secrets. By David W. Dunlap. One was named William. Another was 21 years old. 
They may have worshipped their god at a small Presbyterian church on Cedar Street in Lower Manhattan in the early 1800s, as New York was awakening from its provincial past to become the nation's premier city. When they died, their bodies were placed in six-sided coffins and taken to the northern outskirts of the city, near the corner of Worcester and 6th Street. There, in a 27-foot-long underground burial chamber, with randomly coursed fieldstone walls and a whitewashed barrel-vaulted brick ceiling, they were laid to rest behind a locked wooden door, and then were forgotten. Until Tuesday. False. That was when workers under contract with the city's Department of Design and Construction prepared to install a new 40-inch steel water main down Washington Square East, which was formerly Wooster Street. They encountered the top of a brick vault, an arch about three and a half feet below sidewalk level, and 77 feet south of Washington Square North, which was formerly 6th Street. Inside, human remains lay scattered around a largely empty space. Heavy construction halted, and careful excavation began in consultation with Alyssa Loria, an archaeologist who had been hired as part of the $9 million water main project. Given the archaeological sensitivity of Washington Square Park, two-thirds of which were once a potter's field. A second vault, parallel to the first, was discovered immediately to the south. A stone was removed from the eastern wall, and there was a site to take the breath away from even the most seasoned urban archaeologist. Numerous coffins, perhaps two dozen, covered the floor of the vault. Some were in disarray, but others looked to be in a fine state of preservation. Smaller coffins attested the poignancy to the burial of children, when it was not uncommon for families to suffer the loss of their youngest members. More helpful to historians than anything, perhaps, was that many of the coffins bore a lozenge-shaped ornamentation, ornamental identification plate that will, once they are decipherable, help Miss Loria and the others to put names on the skeletons, and with the names, context, and with the context, new stories of old New York. Neither vault has been entered except by probing cameras. It is not yet clear whether they will be. Quote, these are the remains of family members. Fanoisky Penamora, the Commissioner of Design and Construction Agency, said during a visit to the site on the Friday, quote, we have to be very respectful. Even though a camera, there is, even through just a camera, there is much to learn. That is how Miss Laurie was able to make out the name William on one coffin plate and aged 21 years on another. A third is frustratingly at an oblique angle and yields only 18. The relatively empty first vault had been encountered once before. 50 years ago, by Consolidated Edison Workers, a front-page account in the New York Times described it as a tomb of some sort containing roughly 25 skeletons. Oh, geez, that couldn't be the one we just read, right? A few days later, the city and Con Ed announced that the company would seek a different spot to place a new transformer, and as the Times put it, the skeletons could, quote, continue their rest. With that, they were forgotten again. Mr. Peña Mora said he had learned of this week's discovery on Tuesday while he was attending a conference in Midtown. Emails began flooding his phone. Quote, once you have this finding, he said, you immediately have to issue a stop work order. 
He said his agency was working with the Landmarks Preservation Commission and Department of Environmental Protection to figure out how to proceed with the water main project in a way that minimally disrupts the burial vaults. The Office of the Medical Examiner had also been brought into the case. Mr. Pennymora said, quote, now it is CSI. The vaults did not come as a surprise to Joan H. Kaysmar, an archaeologist who prepared a detailed assessment of Washington Square Park in 2005 for the city's Department of Parks and Recreation. In eight, by 1826, cemeteries belonging to the Cedar Street and Pearl Street Presbyterian churches were documented in the vicinity, Dr. Gesmar wrote. Both were associated with the Scotch Church. The larger of the two plots, she said, belonged to the Cedar Street congregation. As it moved uptown over time, the Cedar Street Church evolved into what is now the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church at 55th Street. We have pretty good sets of records going back to 1808 in our archives, so odds are we could verify a family or individual name if necessary, said Timothy Palmer Curl, a spokesperson for the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. But the investigation could become more difficult, as if it follows the lines of the Scotch Church, which became the second Presbyterian Church at Central Park West and 96th Street. For archaeologists and historians, the story of the burial vaults is just beginning. Even though he is an engineer, and even though the discovery has delayed his job, Mr. Penyamora seems pleased by what has been started. That's fascinating, he said. Now is how we build the future of New York. We discover its past. I, I don't, I have so many, so many problems with this. It's, it's not even funny. So I read, I told you that a lot of the research that I quoted here was from the two archaeological reports, which are readily available online. I don't mean to demean the archaeologist who was hired for this $9 million project. But if she couldn't find evidence of this vault by simply searching existing documents within the city of New York that are in the city archives that were prepared on the exact same plot, she is a moron. I'm going to go right ahead and say that because the fact is those are documents. I, I mean, this as somebody who works in cultural resource management, this girl needs to be slapped upside the head. I'm sorry. I don't know what kind of research she did, if it was just cursory, if she was just hired to monitor and she didn't do any previous research. In my line of work, if my archaeologists come across the foundation of a house that was built in the 1950s that was torn down, that becomes an archaeological site and that is documented. If there is a historic petrified mouse turd, we document it. And granted, this is not necessarily in the heart of a city. Some of these are in rural areas where there's not much else going on. But the amount of effort that I have seen that goes into just if we hear a rumor, we're out there doing preliminary research, and somebody's neighbor comes up and says, hey, I think old Joe, I think his grandparents were buried on the farm. We stop in the preliminary planning of the project and we make damn sure that if there is a cemetery we have it delineated and it's nowhere near our project. This is New York City. 
Everybody knows that Washington Square Park was built on top of a cemetery. You didn't do any research to see that there might be an enormous brick burial vault underneath the street? Where'd this clown get her archaeology degree? I'm sorry. I don't normally like to pick on individuals, but as soon as I read this article, I lost my mind. I took out my phone, I texted my archaeologist, and I said, to, and I was like, can you believe this? And he said, I have no idea. And I don't know the entire circumstances, but to me, as somebody who works in this field, so I think I have the right to say this, this is just bad research. Because the fact is, 50 years is 50 years. That's not that long a time. We have modern databases. We have the ability to search newspaper archives. And it was on the front page of the New York Times. It wasn't like it was buried in some obscure article in a paper that nobody had ever heard of. It's very easy to find. And if I, with my limited resources and my limited budgets, can go out there and I can find a cemetery that's been completely destroyed in the middle of a swamp... There's no excuse for somebody not to find this vault when extensive reports had been written just 10 years earlier on that exact same site. Man, this one is absolutely mind-blowing. And now I feel bad because I feel like I'm picking on this poor woman who, from what I can see, has a pretty successful career in urban archaeology. But... I don't know. There there are just so many red flags that I see about this whole thing. Um, and it's worth mentioning, too, that in the interim, they're actually, they discovered a tombstone um, while they were doing the upgrades to the park. They moved the fountain so it was more centrally placed. And so in 2009, that they had actually uncovered a, co- uh, a headstone um, for a James Jackson who died in 1799 this just to me would be if I was doing any kind of research which I did for most of this week I I would have gone over it with a fine-tooth comb and it just makes me nervous because to me this church vault was well documented and it was well documented within the past couple of years so the question is what happens well obviously they had to realign their plans um, and so they did reroute it, but unfortunately, when they were bringing things up, what happened was that there were bone fragments and other pieces of the vault that came up before they realized what they were digging up, which is part of the problem. And it's one of the reasons that there has been a big push in certain states, uh, Louisiana comes to mind, um, to have a once a graveyard, always a graveyard standard because... Organic remains do stay in soil. Um, It took them four years, but last year they finally made the decision that they were going to rebury anything that came up. Um, So the Parks and Recreation Department got a coffin-sized box, and they essentially decided that they were going to rebury this, not necessarily where it was, which I'm not sure what the actual logic behind this was but they lowered the box five feet into the ground um in essentially like a flower bed um which is near the park entrance on sullivan street and washington square south which is kind of an interesting choice because this is not necessarily anywhere near that work was done um 
but they did make the decision to rebury it um, and they put an engraved granite paver over it um, which the archaeology department proposed the following text quote from 1797 until 1825 what is now Washington Square Park was the city's potter's field where thousands of people including the unidentified the indigent and those who died of yellow fever were buried in addition several church burial grounds were located on the northeast portion of the park Fragmentary remains of some of the early New Yorkers buried in this potter's field were found by archaeologists during construction in and adjacent to Washington Square Park between 2008 and 2017. The city reinterred the remains on this site in 2019. All right, I know I'm already over an hour. Um, and I apologize, I've read a lot of this word for word from the stories, mainly because I think that, particularly with the older stories, it it does something to hear them in the language of that time. But I will be the first to admit that urban archaeology is a nightmare. And I will be the first to admit that there are probably remains under most of our modern cities. Part of me thinks that it really isn't a problem that there are possibly upwards of 20,000 people buried under Washington Square Park. It's pretty peaceful. It's central to New York. People come to visit it. It's pleasant and bucolic. And there's something to be said about having a park above you. It's certainly the aesthetic that throughout the history of American cemeteries that we have really strived for. We certainly, if anything, on this podcast have already covered the fact that there are no guarantees of a permanent resting place. And so having a park in New York City open parkland is certainly, it's a better bet than most. I have a problem with these that are on the borders. I think that you need to document them and you need to understand. And I'm sorry, 50 years is not that long to not have a memory of this. And so I certainly hope that in another 50 years, if I'm still around in my 80s, that I don't open up the New York Times and see that they have hit these vaults again. I do think it teaches us something. You know, if you want to leave the burials there, that is fine. I don't think that there should be any movement whatsoever. I think that they have tried to do their best, but there are certain areas where there's still room for improvement. And certainly, this is not the only spot in New York that this happens. Certainly, if you go to just about any park, whether it's Madison Square Park, you were probably going to find some kind of burial underneath it. And that, like I said, is just part of the reality of urban archaeology. Um, and in some cases, you can see remnants. Like I said, you can still see the remnants of that one particular burial. Central Park, um, right near the Mariner's Gate, was the site of All Angels Church, which was actually a mixed-race church um, founded in 1848 that was taken nine years later by eminent domain for Central Park. In 1871, they discovered burials from it. In a city as densely populated as New York, this is not surprising because green space, whether it's for a cemetery or for some other purpose, is, is in high demand. Um, not too far from Washington Square in the West Village, James J. Walker Park, same thing. This was the extension of Trinity Church, which I talked about earlier. When they ran out of burial space, this was the first place they expanded between 1812 and 1895. There are something like 10,000 burials there in the land that's now a park. It was acquired in 1895 by the Parks Department. 
if you go there today, there's only one gravestone still remaining. It's um, a sarcophagus from 1834. Um, it actually memorializes three firefighters who died on Pearl Street, but in many ways, it's the last remnant of the fact that the whole thing is a cemetery. And if you know Trinity Church, again, moved further uptown. Um, their uptown graveyard, um, very striking, actually. If you've seen the movie The Royal Tenenbaums, it's actually featured in that. Um, that's where the Tenenbaum family plot is, is in the uptown Trinity Cemetery. So I think that, honestly, having a park built on top of these or a playground or some other recreational space is in many ways... It's better than opening it up for redevelopment. It's better than building a neighborhood on top of it. I mean, it is maybe not the ideal, respectful situation, but there is still a certain amount of dignity to it. But let's just try to keep track of these things, shall we? So sorry if I did too much ranting and raving today, but that that was just when I was reading newspaper articles. I did get very fired up this week. As always, thank you so much um, for subscribing, for rating and reviewing. I would love some more ratings and reviews because they do make me much more visible. Remember, I am the only cemetery-only podcast in the United States. So if people are looking for cemetery podcasts, make sure that they can find me. Um, I talked to some people just this week and they said, geez, we wish we had known about your podcast earlier rather than having missing a whole year. Um, as always, too, you can check in. I am still trying to get my website straightened out. I still have not heard back from Weebly. I am seriously considering just switching the website over to a different host because they have not been very friendly. Um, so the website hasn't been updated, but uh, you can always get a hold of me by email at tombwithaviewpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at Tomb with a View Podcast and on Instagram at Tomb Period with Period A Period View. Um, thank you for everybody who followed along with the videos. That was both fun and a little bit painful. Um, I have one or two other things that I talked about in the videos that I'm also going to be covering, like this topic. Um, so look forward to that over the next couple of weeks. And um, I won't tell you too much, but I will be taking Tomb of the View on the road in the not-so-distant future. So that's something more to look forward to. As always, though, have a wonderful weekend. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.